technology. And we're talking about our fourth R word. Uh, We've covered reflection and rebellion and redemption. And this morning we're talking about restoration. Um, just a bit, of, a bit of review, another R word. Pastors are always supposed to have alliterated points, so, right? It's all R words this morning. Um, but technology is first and foremost a reflection of humans being created in the image of a creative God. So God put us in the world, and he made all sorts of stuff, and said, hey, you make stuff with the stuff I've made. Like, do things with it. Cultivate and keep this world. And so human beings create tools, technology, and, and they're good. Like, God wants people to create technology. It's not something that's done apart from God. It is God-blessed. It's a reflection of being created in God's image. But there's also this corrosive nature of sin, rebellion, that impacts the way we interact with technology, the things we create, and it distorts them. Uh, one of the ways that I think this reflection rebellion is playing out real-time, because this is an ongoing thing. This is the world we live in. Um, I don't know how many of you follow the news or whatever, but one of the big things in the news this last week was about 3D printing and the 3D printing of guns. Um, that there's this, there's this question of, like, what's going to happen when people can, can just, like, cr- create a design for a, a gun that can actually fire a bullet and, and use a 3D printer to print these materials that won't be picked up by, like, airport scanners and things like that. Like, this, is, this could be really problematic. So we don't know how big of a problem this is actually going to be. But 3D printing is unbelievable. I don't know how many of you, if, like, if anybody has interacted with one of these, if they have them in schools, or if you have one, they're unreal. I mean, they're awesome. That you can print yourself a pair of flip-flops if you want to. Um, or, I don't know why you would want to, but you can. Or glasses, or whatever. And, and one of the cool ways that our creativity and 3D printing has been a reflection of God's, um, you know, goodness is that all sorts of um, prosthetic limbs have been able to be printed with just your home 3D printer, um, that you can, you can print uh, these amazing uh, prosthetic limbs that give people a new chance at mobility and to do things that they haven't been able to do before because they've, they've lost a limb or were, were born that way. And so this is like, man, on one hand, this is a reflection of God's goodness, and then you see how rebellion can tilt this good thing to turn it into an object that's not, only, that's not giving life but could take life. Do you see this reflection rebellion playing out in real time? This is this is the ongoing, so nod your head with me if like, that makes sense. Okay, thank you. need some feedback every once in a while. Okay, so reflection, rebellion. But then last week we talked about redemption, that Jesus wants to redeem all of the ways that we tend to rebel and misuse technology. In fact, the cross, as we talked about last week, is human technology, and it is human technology at its absolute worst. It's taking the raw materials that God created, this tree, and turning it into a tool of of suffering and death. Um, but what Jesus does, Jesus shows up into the world and he's a techie. For 30 years, when God becomes flesh, what does he do? He does technology. Um, and the word carpenter is the word tecton, which we get our word technology from. Jesus works in the wood shop, doing technology, creating things with tools, but then ultimately Jesus goes to the cross and he is crucified on this piece of human technology. But the reason we have a cross in front of our, our church and the reason we have, you know, cross necklaces or tattoos or whatever the case may be is because the cross is no longer a symbol of, of death and suffering and shame. It's a symbol of mercy and redemption and hope and new life because Jesus has entered into all the ways that we miss um, 
and misuse our creativity, and he is redeeming it from the inside out. It's part of the message of the cross. And so Jesus now wants to restore everything that was lost through human sin. And that includes us. Like Jesus, like when we receive the gift of redemption that God has given his life to save us from sin, God begins this work of restoration and and it starts to restore everything that sin did in our hearts and in the world. And so that's what I want to talk about the rest of the morning here is, is this work of restoration. So if you're in John chapter 21, excuse me, click. Here we go. Um, Jesus, John 21 is after the resurrection. It's, um, it's his, his first sort of Easter Sunday morning. And the disciples have been scattered, and a few of them decide to go fishing. They had been fishermen before Jesus said, hey, come follow me. And they were disciples, became disciples. Now they're just they're going back to fishing. And so they're out in a boat, and they fished all night and caught no fishes. Fished all night, caught no fishes. Um, but then Jesus says to them, throw your nets on the other side, and they get this miraculous catch of fish. And so Peter is in the boat, and he recognizes this man on the shore who's speaking to them. It's, it's Jesus. It's the Lord. And that's what Peter, he's like, it's the Lord. And he jumps into the water, and he swims to shore. Um, and so Peter gets out of the water, and he's soaking wet. And this is what he says in, in John 21, verse 9. Um, when they landed, they saw fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Now, you can just, like, read past that, um, but let's just stop for a minute and think about that. Who made the fire? Jesus. Like, what does the resurrected Christ do? Apparently, he makes a fire. What is fire? It's human technology. Like, people created fire. Like, uh, I mean, you've seen Night at the Museum. You know the cavemen, like, right? In Night at the Museum, they worked really hard to try to figure out fire. Um, fire is a human invention. It's, it's creativity. Bread is a human invention. You, you take these ingredients and you mix it together. And Jesus does technology here. He makes a fire and he creates this space to interact with his disciples. Now, you imagine Peter. He's there. And he's sitting with the other disciples, and he's sitting with Jesus, and he's having this, you know, this meal of fish and bread for breakfast. And he's soaking wet, right? So you can picture him, and he starts, as he's eating, he warms himself over the fire. And all of a sudden, it hits him. The last time he was warming himself by a fire. Do you know the story? In John 18, you can read about it. But it's three days earlier. So on that night that Jesus had been uh, arrested, sort of apprehended in the garden, and Peter, right, in his rebellion, he, he took out a, a knife, a sword, and he chopped at the guy and ended up cutting his ear off, and Jesus rebuked him for it. He put away your swords. If my kingdom were like of this world, then my people would fight, but my kingdom's not of this world. And they watched Jesus... Um, be dragged in front of this mob, this mock um, courtroom setting, and they watched him be condemned. And Peter's there in the courtyard on the night before Jesus was crucified, and it's cold, and he is warming himself over the fire. 
And it was there while he's warming himself by these others in the fire. Somebody looks at him and says, wait, wait a second, weren't you one of his disciples? What does Peter say? No, no, it wasn't me. He denies it. He just flatly denies it. And he's still there. He's still warming himself by the fire, it says in John 18. And somebody else says, wait a second. Like, I'm the cousin of the guy whose ear you cut off. I know it was you. And, Jesus, uh, and Peter denied, no, it wasn't me. And then Peter realizes in that moment, the rooster crows, the sun is coming up, he realizes that he has just denied his Lord. So, so Peter, like, now he's, it's a couple days later, he's been living in shame for a few days, and he's sitting by the fire, and I, I imagine him, like, looking into the coals of this fire, warming himself, and all of a sudden his shame just sort of floods back into him. And what does Jesus do? He restores him. Like Jesus creates this setting, this technology, this fire, this breakfast for an opportunity to restore his disciple. To, to tell him that you are not your worst moments. You are not that moment of rebellion. You are not that thing that you did that could, if you let it, define you for the rest of your life. And you could let this thing just drive you into the shadows. And you could let this thing um, just sort of wreck your life and your calling and your mission. But Jesus looks at Peter in these moments, sitting around the fire, and he restores him. He speaks life into him. He says, he, he gives him a brand new identity and, and begins to restore him from the inside out. But the restoration that Jesus does in Peter isn't just for Peter's own sake. It's so that he can be sent into the world to be a restorer of others. See, this is one of the things that Jesus wants to do. Like, when we surrender our life to him, as he starts to restore us from the inside out. It's like, you are no longer your former identity. You're no longer that person who, who blew it in that way. You are no longer the person who can't control their temper. Um, or, or whatever the case may be, driven by your lusts and desires. Like, you're no longer that person. You are a fundamentally new person because you have been redeemed by Christ. And then the rest of our lives is just learning to allow God to restore us, to allow Him to define who we are, to get all of our life from what He has done in us. And this is what happens to Peter. Peter is restored in these moments around the fire. Jesus uses technology to bring about restoration. How many of you know the restoration we long for is never going to happen without Jesus? The restoration we long for is not going to happen through technology. Technology alone. Our hope for restoration is only found in Jesus. Uh, and, and one of the things that happens, like when we when we as people of faith, like, we feel the restoration that God is doing inside of us, but there, we look at the bigger world and we see all the brokenness and pain and chaos, and there's something inside of us that hungers and thirsts for the world to be made right. Many times you, you read stories of disasters and, and, and tragedy or whatever it is, there should be something inside people of faith that just say, God, how long? I mean, that, that cries out to say, God, this is not right. This is not the way the world should be. And we long not just for a personal restoration, but we long for a total restoration, a restoration of all things. You feel this? I mean, do you feel this tension to say, God, I, I know the work you're doing inside of me, and yet, God, I see the world, and I long for restoration. The restoration we long for in the world is not going to happen through technology. 
Um, it's not going to happen through human progress. It is only going to happen through Jesus who returns to restore everything that was lost through human sin. Now, there's this growing sense. Can we geek out for like two minutes? Somebody time me. Um, and I, I almost hesitate to do this because I don't understand enough of it to even talk coherently about it. But uh, some of you may know more about this than I do. How many of you have heard of the idea of the omega point? Has anybody heard about this? So here's the deal. Um, in, in the 19th century, um, there was all of this um, hope in human progress. Like, you know what? Like, people are living longer than they were 100 years ago, and there's all sorts of new, like, innovations. Human progress is just going to take us to, like, the world is going to be made new through human technology and progress. But then the 20th century happened. And we lost that notion. Why? Because we had a couple world wars and we had some dictators that killed millions of people. I mean, it's horrible. The 20th century was the bloodiest century in the history of the world. And so we gave up the idea of human progress. Like, no, technology is not going to fix us. Our hope has to come from somewhere else. It has to come from many people turn to God. Um, but now that idea of human progress is catching steam again. And it's catching steam through technology, through the Internet. And here's the idea, is that um, the Internet can function like a brain in and of itself. Okay, here's where we geek out. Um, so you're connected to the internet, and you're connected to the internet, and seven billion people across the world are connected to the internet, whatever the case is. And it's like the brain like, uh, of the internet is kind of a consciousness of itself. And what you can do is you can actually, they're working on this, is you can take your consciousness and upload it to a machine and plug it into this bigger system of the web. And what's going to happen eventually, so this uh, idea of progress says, is we'll reach this point called an omega point where we all just exist in this disembodied bliss of a wireless reality. That everything will be made new, but it will be made new through technology. This is a problem. Because it doesn't take serious the reality of humans. It's a problem for lots of reasons. But it doesn't take seriously the problem of human sin. The restoration we long for is not going to come through a, a dot com. It is not going to come through the internet. The restoration we long for is not going to come through human progress. It is going to come through the power of the resurrected Jesus. And so um, we get this glimpse of, of restoration we long for at the end of the Bible. In Revelation 21, check this out. Uh, you can turn, turn to Revelation 21. John, um, the Apostle John gets this glimpse of, of, of this restoration we long for. And you can see this in Revelation 21, uh, first couple of verses, first five verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had, had just passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Do you, there's this image of, like, the first heaven and the first earth that was corrupted by human sin. And, and what happened when humans sin is they became subject to death. They started passing away. But Jesus came and resurrected us and gave us the promise of resurrection, right? So it's like not even just human beings who pass away, but the whole earth that was subject to human sin is going to just kind of pass away. But it's not left to death. Jesus is going to redeem it and restore it and resurrect it. So the first heaven, the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. Verse 2, And then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Verse 5, and he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. This is the glimpse of the end of history when Jesus returns and everything that he began to do through, through the redemption on the cross and the resurrection from the dead, he will make complete in the restoration of all things. And this is what we long for, and this is what we hope and pray for as we pray, God, may your kingdom come. This is what we work for. This is what we put all of our creativity and all of our God-given energy into, is this moment. Now, as as John catches this glimpse, and and we realize, like, John is trying to describe something that's beyond words. I mean, he's he's trying to, like, it's beyond language, but he, he tries to describe this, and he looks up, and he sees this holy what? What does he see coming down out of heaven? The kingdom come is pictured as a what? A city. Wait a second. Like the story starts in a garden, and we kind of get this idea that gardens are kind of what God wants. God wants a garden. There's no human technology in a garden. It's just nature. That's the way God wants it. But John looks, and he doesn't see a holy garden. He sees a holy city. And what are cities full of? I better stop it right there because somebody's going to be smart about what cities are full of. I don't know. I, I realize I opened the door for some sarcastic comments right there. At least my head was full of them. Um, cities are full of technology, right? Cities are full of buildings. They're full of homes. They're full of skyscrapers. They're full of walls and gates and streets and all sorts of things. Who built these things in the kingdom come, in the holy city? I mean, this is, this is amazing. Like, I've never sort of caught this before, that God's dream has always been to use human creativity and human technology. And in the end, what God does, I think, is he just redeems and restores all the things that we've made. And we've used them for maybe purposes that were not God's will, but God just restores it and says, I'm actually, I'm blessed by the things that you have made, and we're going to restore it into something more beautiful than you ever could have imagined. How cool is that? Like, that God, God wants to restore everything. In fact, verse 5, check out verse 5 here. Um, he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So Genesis 1 begins with God doing what? Making stuff. I mean, he makes nature. He makes everything. There is nothing, and God makes something. He makes everything, nature, raw materials. But J- Revelation 21, the end of the Bible, God is still making stuff. But he's not making nature. He's not making the raw materials. What is he making? He's making things new out of the things that we have made. So in the beginning, God makes the stuff, and then he makes us in his image, and he says, like, you make stuff out of the stuff that I've made. And then in the end, God is going to take the stuff that we've made out of the stuff that God made in the beginning, and he's going to make all the stuff new. How cool is that? You follow? You track, right? It's, it's a little bit like this. It's like uh, when I was like, when, I was, uh, when our kids were younger, sometimes, like, they would crawl up on my lap while I'm working at the desk, and, you know, have a notebook paper there, and just grab a pen, and they'd start drawing, right, on, on like, a, a piece of paper. And, um, 
And it's like, you know, these lines, they don't, like, make sense. They're not really drawn. And they're just sort of scribbling. And, of course, like, you just say, like, hey, that's worthless. Like, get rid of that. Don't mess up my paper. You don't say that. It's not parent. That's, that's horrible. Don't say. But what do you do? You take these lines and, you know, these scribbles, and, and you help them turn them into something. Like, you know, oh, you know what? This, this looks like a dog. So you draw little ears on it and a nose. Oh, this is a flower, and you, you turn it into something. You take the stuff that they've made, and you, you redeem it, and you restore it, and you turn it into something. This is a picture of what God does at the end. Throughout the Bible, uh, the city is always a picture of brokenness and fallenness and sin. From the very first city that Cain built to the city we talked about last week at Babel and Babylon that Nimrod built, and cities are always pictured throughout the Bible, except for the holy city, Jerusalem, as, as the, the epitome of human sin. And it's a holy city in the end that God redeems and restores all the ways that humans have blown it and, and brings, um, brings about a, a brand new creation. Our hope is in Jesus and what he's doing. Um, here, here's an example uh, N.T. Wright, um, he's one of my favorite theologians. He, he gives this example, and I love it. So think about this. I go back uh, a couple hundred years, five, six hundred years, to um, a medieval cathedral. Like, there's, a, there's a, a master mason who comes into this, this peasant village. Excuse me. <coughs> I thought I muted that. I didn't mute it. Sorry about that. Um, comes into this peasant village and, and starts giving these jobs, hiring people who, who are interested to start working with stones. And he sends them down to the stone quarry. And they pick out these stones. And then he gives them a pattern for this particular stone. And he gives them tools. He gives them hammer and chisels and things like that. And, and just says, I want you to carve this stone into this thing. And I, I'm going to leave. And it's going to take a while. Like, but your job is just to keep, keep chiseling this thing out. And it's probably going to hurt sometimes. Like your fingers are probably going to get bloody. Um, and, and you're going to have all sorts of questions. But just trust. Just, just keep doing this. And so here are these illiterate peasants. And they go down the quarry. They get the stones. And they're in the stonemason's yard. And they just, day after day, they're just working on this one thing that the mason has asked them to do. And at some point, the mason comes back. And he, he gathers up all these stones that all these illiterate peasants have made, and he just starts putting them together. And he builds a scaffolding, and he just starts putting them together into something that is absolutely more awe-inspiring and more beautiful than any of the peasants could have dreamed about. I mean, had the mason come and said, like, hey, here's what we're, your stone Here's what we're going to do with it. They couldn't have even have comprehended it. They've never seen a cathedral before. They had no idea what he was talking about. It was like another language to them. So they just keep doing the thing. They keep building this thing that they're called to do. When the mason comes back and he, he builds this thing that is, that is absolutely awe-inspiringly beautiful. And so one day, the peasant sort of stumbles out of his house and comes over and he's blinking in the light. His breath is taken away by this thing that the mason has built. And as he begins to look at it, he all of a sudden like loses his breath because that's his piece. That's her piece. The piece that she had spent her life 
doing has been incorporated into this thing that is absolutely stunning. And she feels involved in this sense of accomplishment and pride at just being included in this beautiful thing. You see, someday the mason is going to come back. And um, he's going to take all of the stones that we've been carving through just like our, our faithfulness to Jesus. Like we're, we're illiterate and we don't understand. We don't know the plan. All we know is we are called to do this thing. We're called to love these people. We're called to, to just be faithful to do this thing. And so sometimes we mess up and sometimes our fingers get bloody and sometimes we get tired of waiting. But we just keep doing it. And we trust that others, billions of people around the world are doing the same thing, just doing what they're called to be faithful with. And someday, Jesus is going to return and he's going to take all of the things that we've done and he's going to turn them into this new city, this holy city, this new Jerusalem. And someday we will walk out of the darkness, blinking in the light of the new day and we will be unbelievably awestruck and inspired by what God has done. And we may just at some point glimpse and see the piece that we contributed. I mean, this tiny little thing that we thought, I thought it was worthless. I thought I had messed up. That was, that was a piece where I, I had blown it. And God used it for his glory and his purposes. You see, like the work we do, we don't build the kingdom. As, as people of faith, we are illiterate peasants. We don't build the kingdom. We build for the kingdom. All we're called to do is just be faithful. Love your neighbors. Follow Jesus. And just, just keep doing these simple things. Use your creativity to do what God has called you to do and trust that someday God is going to come back and he's going to use it and your labor in the Lord is not in vain and Jesus is going to build the kingdom. It's on him. It's on him. I like that example. I don't know about you. It makes me excited. So here's how I want to end the series is just... Real quick, a, a couple of real practical things with, human, with technology. Questions of discernment, right? Anytime you're thinking about technology, you can ask these questions. How does this technology, how is this technology a reflection of human creativity? Because that's good. How, how does it reflect human creativity? Uh, how are we tempted to use it for rebellion? Is there any way that Jesus might want to redeem it? And how might I use this to move toward God's vision of restoration? So any technology, you can, you can ask these discerning questions about how we best use it. Uh, a couple of things, as we live as people between the cross and the restoration, uh, we live by different values than the world around us. We live by values of the kingdom. And so here are some, some real quick values, like for your family or you as an individual. Next slide. Um, that, that can guide us in our use of technology. One, we value creativity over consumption. It is not God's best for us to sit in front of a screen consuming media for three or four or five hours a day. It's it's not God's best for us. That God has created us to be creative. And, And so, like, we can, not all screen time is the same. Like, as parents, not all screen time is the same. You say, well, you get 30 minutes of screen time. Well, 30 minutes of screen time consuming YouTube videos and 30 minutes of screen time, like, creating a video or making a story or writing a paper is very different. One is creative and one is just consuming. So use screens to foster creativity. We value creativity over consumption. Uh, we had a funeral here last week for Jane Kaufman. And um, Jane was incredibly creative and artistic and she created all of these amazing quilts 
that were displayed, right? And as you, like, walk through, you just saw, like, I mean, the hours that she had spent making these things. That was her creativity. And she could have, she could have just, you know, sort of sat in front of a TV, like, consuming things. But she didn't. She didn't. We value creativity over consumption. Uh, we value with. Um, like, technology it can sometimes pull us away from just face-to-face relationships. And as people in the kingdom, we value with more than like just interacting with each other through virtual means. If, I, if my phone rings and my dad is calling from Ohio, and I, I take it because it's my dad, I'm going to take the call, right? Um, I'm automatically connected to him and I'm disconnected from you. In some ways, like I'm connected to him, but I'm disconnected to you. That's what technology does. It connects us to people at a distance, but it disconnects us from people close to us. And so um, thinking about technology, how do we use technology to create real face-to-face experiences like Jesus with his disciples eating breakfast? So you, you send a text message, but rather than just sending everything through text, you say, hey, can we get together and have coffee? Hey, can we have, or maybe that's not possible. So you say, can we have a five-minute phone call? Can we just talk? Um, technology can lead us to say the most efficient thing is the best. The most efficient thing is not always the best. In the kingdom of God, the best is better than the most efficient. If you are fixing something and your child, your three-year-old comes to you and says, hey, can, you, can I watch you fix this? Can I help you? What's most efficient? It's not most efficient to let them help you fix it. Like to explain, okay, here's how this thing works, whatever. It is much more efficient for you to say, hey, go watch that screen and I'll fix this thing and then we'll do something later. But is that the best? Like, what, what's best? It's best to be with people. And so efficiency is not best. And so um, we value with more than efficiency. And then finally, uh, we value truth and transparency. Um, I lie all the time. I, I, mean, I, I mean, growing in my awareness of how much I lie. And I lie to this $600 piece of plastic and precious metals. Because, like, every time I upgrade my Apple user agreement, I have to end it with this big, fat, pants-on-fire lie that says, I have read the terms and conditions and I agree to them. (laughs) And I have never in my life read the terms and conditions, and neither have you. I can almost guarantee that. And we're not going to say, I read it, I'm good, confirm. And so we just, like, start these little lies. And then, like, you guys say, ah, that's ridiculous. Everybody does that. Well, it's easy to just start, kind of, like, start devaluing truth. Um... You know, I got this, like, fit, or this, this activity tracker now, and it tracks my steps. And I've, like, I've heard stories of people who are in competitions for, like, getting the most steps. And, you know, like, you sit on the couch, like, going like this, like, watching YouTube videos, right? Because you want to get your movements in because you want to win the competition. But you're lying to yourself, and you're lying to others because you're not actually getting your steps in. Um, and, and so um, when we start to do this, technology teaches us to just start lying and, and it, if we do that, if we start growing in our ability to deceive ourselves and others, it becomes really easy to just delete browsing history. To just kind of create, uh, I'll, I'll create another account with another password that nobody knows. Uh, you know what, that, that text message, I don't really want anybody to find that. So we start deleting. And the more we start to lie to ourselves, to God, to others, the more we just grow in our capacity to lie. And as kingdom of God people, we value truth. We value transparency. And so this is a value we want to take into our technology. How do we do this? God, we, we trust in your work of restoration. God, we trust that you are at work in Jesus, redeeming us from the inside out. 
that you, you are fixing things that are broken, that you're taking our worst moments and you're remaking them into things that can be used for your glory and your honor. And Jesus, we trust that you are going to return, that you are going to come back as the master mason and you are going to take all of these things that we've done and we felt like they're just not that good and you're going to turn them into something more beautiful than we ever could have imagined. So, so God, help us to be faithful. Help us to trust you. Help us to give our lives to follow your lead. God, we ask you to use us in your work. In Jesus' name, amen.